This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. Welcome to the Best Friends Podcast. Today is October the 21st. My name is John Dunn. And as the calendar year begins to wind down, there's a group of people in animal welfare that are just starting to get warmed up. And that group is the fundraisers, because the last quarter of the year is a crucial part of the annual fundraising strategy. Who you're talking to, what you're asking for, how you're asking it, where you're asking it, all of those are big questions. And a successful year-end campaign can be a difficult thing to pull off. So we thought that today we'd sit down with Trish Tolbert. She's the senior development strategist for the national embed team at Best Friends. And by the way, my colleague Liz Finch wrote a story on this very topic. She also spoke with Trish. It's a fantastic companion piece to today's podcast because you'll find even more great tips from Trish about how to tell your story. The link to it will be on the podcast website, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Scroll down, click the link for episode 84. Episode 84, bestfriends.org slash podcast. The 2022 Best Friends National Conference happening in July. I know, I know, it's still 2021, so we're a ways off, but it is the time that you need to start pulling together your session ideas if you want to be a speaker at the conference in Raleigh, North Carolina in July 2022. Maybe you're an expert in today's topic, fundraising. Maybe you're a field services officer. You think your experiences and knowledge can help others be more effective at saving lives. Maybe your expertise is in adoptions or fostering, volunteers, technology, DEI, innovation, doesn't matter. Whatever your area of expertise, if you want to speak at the Best Friends National Conference, you need to be working on your proposal right now. The submission period is open. Time is ticking. November 19th is the end of the submission period. And we'll have information on the page for episode 84 of the podcast. Go to bestfriends.org slash podcast. I'll also put a link in the podcast episode show notes. So now on to today's episode, year-end giving. It is a big deal. Lots of surveys over the years have come up with similar numbers, which are basically that about a third, 30% or so, of all annual charitable giving happens in December, just one month. For some organizations, yours may be one of them, the year-end campaign represents a majority of all the money they raise that year. So ideally, you've been working on your year-end campaign since the dog days of summer, but it's never too late to get started, and telling great stories is important regardless of the season. So today we're joined by the senior development strategist for the National Embed team at Best Friends, Trish Tolbert. She helps shelters and rescue organizations across the country be the best fundraisers they can be. So whether you're a new fundraiser or seasoned pro, Trish always has some great insight. I always enjoy chatting with her, and I hope you enjoy. Now, Trish, loyal listeners of the Best Friends podcast are uh, likely to know your name, and I mean the seriously loyal because you were a guest on the second episode all the way back in April of last year. And ever since then, we've talked about having you back, so I'm so glad you're here. So let's talk about fundraising and storytelling. You know, the calendar year is coming to a close, and it's such a huge part of an annual fundraising strategy. Absolutely. And that's on two fronts, John. And, and just to be clear for those that may be listening and, and are just starting out in fundraising, it's the end of the calendar year. 
which also translates to end of fiscal year for a lot of groups. But then some groups and Best Friends is certainly one of those. We have an end of fiscal year when we have an end of calendar year. So anytime it's the end of anything, it's that period when you really want to make sure that everything is working, everything is in sync. And because most individuals tend to give their charitable gifts towards the end of the calendar year, even if the end of your fiscal year is something like June 30th, you're still going to have a really intensive October, November, December, because that's when people are thinking about giving most. Make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. And, you know, today, Trish, I want to spend time focusing uh, on storytelling because, you know, whether it's December or January or July, whether we're talking about a one-time gift or a monthly gift or plan giving, it doesn't matter. You have a story to tell and you have to tell that story well to be effective, I think, to be the most effective you can be. Before we jumped on the call, I was thinking of, you know, organizations and, and people I think do this really well. And one person that popped into uh, my mind is, is the kitten lady, Hannah Shaw. She's also been on the podcast not long after you, actually, episode number 10, as a monthly donor to her Orphan Kitten Club organization, I am now a member in that club. And from time to time, I get these amazing little postcards in the mail, and they call them trading cards. But they're just postcards. One side, a, a beautiful photo of a kitten that they saved. And then on the back, it's just like sports trading cards, little stats about the kitten when they were born, all that kind of stuff. It's so simple, but just so effective. Just for me as a donor, I, I never sort of I'm allowed to forget about the work and the impact that my donation has. That's a great dovetailing of that kind of stewardship. And yet she's storytelling because those kittens, I mean, we're kitten ladies all over our house as well, as well as tiny kittens, right? Um, and we know those kittens by name and we know those kittens stories and the people who help them, we know something of their story. So you can still do a great job with your cultivation and stewardship of any group as well as individual if you bring in that whole storytelling element and engage people in that way. So the folks listening to the podcast run the gamut, Trish, who they are, where they work, organizations, big, small, urban, rural, well-resourced, under-resourced. So given that, I know it can be difficult to talk about tactics and kind of hit everybody where they are, you know? But if there is something, you know, you're out there speaking with organizations, shelters, what is like the one thing that you say to them, you know, hey, this is really the key to, to your success? Well, I think one really simple thing I always encourage every group to do is make sure that you are tracking responses in, in a database. I know we all start out with back of the napkin systems, right? Okay, I've, I've got a notebook or I'm going to use Excel and track my donors that way. But what, what you lose when you stick to that as opposed to getting some type of donor software is you really can't do the kind of analysis. And you know, John, just from a life-saving standpoint, how, we, how much better a job we've been able to do once we we had the data on life-saving, right? So for fundraising, you've got to have a donor database that lets you see when are people giving? What are they giving to? What is the response? So that you can help filter out 
and make sure you're making great, efficient use of money. You mentioned that your inbox is always full, and as is mine and also my mailbox, because I, I have not sat down and said to people, okay, you need to stop. I'm going to give this to you once a year. And the way you will get it again is if you ensure you don't keep sending me the mail request, right? And of course, fundraising, a lot of people do that because it works. They wouldn't do it if they didn't get more money in than they sent out. But I will tell you that sometimes I suspect people are not always looking at that. And there's nothing probably more annoying to a fundraiser than, than a uh, someone who is a fundraiser also. <laughs> hey, when was the last time you evaluated your return on investment, right? But I do periodically write those notes there, or I will write notes on some of the things that they send to my 96-year-old mother. You know, it's like, okay, my father he died three years ago. Surely you guys are running this database of donors through something that tells you when people are deceased. But again, my suspicion is, nope, not everybody is. And so, you know, how, how do you as a donor filter out the noise? It's beginning by giving people feedback on what you're really interested in and what you're not. And on the flip side, we as fundraisers need to pay attention to that. And if, they're, if they don't have the time to give us messages, then at least look and see when was the last time you gave? When do you archive somebody? And then maybe, maybe you send something to them two years later just to see. And if they still don't give, then take them off your list, right? Yes, there are some donors who will give to you every single year, like clockwork. But then there are some that just because they don't give this year, they might give again next year, right? What we don't know when we sit on the side of the, the room that is the fundraising part, we don't know what's happening in somebody's life, right? Did they have, an, and of course with COVID, this is just exponentially truer. We don't know if they've had an economic downturn, if they've got a child or grandchild who's struggling to get through school in some way or buy a house for them. We just don't know what people's situation will be. And so we shouldn't give up on them just because they didn't give say this year. And there will some people, there are some causes that I don't give to every year, but I'll give every two years or every three years. And that's true of many people. So again, back to the best way to sort of use that universe of donors that have come into your database and to think about year in is who are your absolute regular give every time that you ask them to people that then you want to honor that. Who are your people that give gave last year, but they may not give this year or they didn't give last year. So there's a, a tailoring of the message. There's no excuse for anybody in, in this day and age who has a digital donor database to not be able to do a bit of personalization. And I don't mean saying, hey, John, I know you do a podcast for best friends and I know that you love England. And we're not talking about that layer of personalization, but at least demonstrate to me that you know I've given before, okay? I've been a founding donor to several things, and the ones that keep getting gifts from me are the ones who at least reference that. They don't even have to look at it, but they've got it in their database, and they're at least able to say it. The ones that ask me to become a founding donor after I've already become a founding donor, strike one, you know? And for some people, that's strike three, all in one. 
So we can do those kinds of things. And I think the other thing about end of year is just it's also an opportunity. If there are people that you think may not be giving, just use it as a time for gratitude. There's gratitude all around us, as you know, particularly at this season. And, and you're coming up on the end of a calendar year, again, regardless of end of fiscal year. And so what has happened in this year that donors have made possible? And, that, and the easiest thing to do in your end of year, just communication in general with people, is to push through the filter, take all your communications you want to share with people, push them through that filter of how many times in that communication, regardless of what the channel is, did I say I and we versus how many times did I say you? I would take something like you have helped us do. No, you have done right. You've done these things. No one out there really thinks that I'm saying you, John, took those kittens from Kitten Lady and you personally bottle fed them. But you have ensured that those kittens did X, Y, and Z, got X, Y, and Z. So that is a really simple thing to do at the end of year is push all your communications through that I, we, you kind of filter. Now, over the years, I've met incredible people in the nonprofit world, right? People who work in other charitable areas, the environment, you know, issues in the developing world. And I get constant grief from them <laughs> uh, for working in animal welfare because, you know, it's so quote unquote easy for us in animal welfare because we've just got puppies and kittens, right? So easy. We just put photos of kittens out and the money rolls in. Um, while they're sort of joking, I think they're also kind of not because everyone listening to this has those individual moments, an adoption, a foster success story, great story about a staff member, you know, going above and beyond a volunteer. So it's hard to pick one thing, but I, am I right in saying that when we are talking about fundraising and being effective and that appeal, we really do need to have focus around one thing? One thing to illustrate programs, principles, that's how you start, because that's what the human heart is able to absorb. So I'll give you a for instance. I just helped um, one of my teammates on the embed team write uh, a thank you. This was actually a thank you, not an ask, but I'd have done the same thing for for end of year. And we started out with the story of one dog who frankly would not have had a second chance at life had there not been new programs put in place based on the community's new commitment to animal welfare and this particular donor's help. And so it wasn't that the money was given to this dog, particularly, the money was given to the programs that this dog then benefited from. So we told that story. And that's easy for our brains to absorb and our, and our hearts to take in. And we see this animal, we connect with it. But then you build out from that using, I always say, use your stats, your statistics to show scope and scale. So we moved right out of that story and the thanking. We thanked, wow, can't wait to share with you what's been happening this year. Stories like this one. And we told the story. And then we moved out of the story and saying, of course, this dog is representative. And representative is not the word I use. But this dog's like the other X, Y, Z. And I give a number of dogs that we see at the shelter every single week. And because of your generosity, 
we're now able to offer a second chance at life at for for those dogs and for the people who are caring for them because there's always going to be people connected right maybe it's adopter foster staff member we know what the morale situation is like in shelters across this country so when staff members are able to go home at night knowing that some of the things that they are doing every day because of new programs are making sure that animals get a second chance that's a powerful impact to convey to the donors. And I, I think we should never miss a chance. Yes, we do have some people out there that care primarily. My, my husband is a vet tech at zoos across the nation. He likes animals a whole lot more than he likes people. But as a, as a donor, uh, he can appreciate the fact that it makes a difference in the lives of people as well. So how are we choosing the right stories then? Uh, you know, when there are lots of great examples, things that maybe I, John Dunn, employee, am drawn to may not be something that resonates with the public in the same way. You know, I think we do such a great job at Best Friends of identifying these stories of impact, helping folks feel part of it, but it feels like it would just be a huge amount of pressure to have to be the person choosing what stories to tell. You know, what is the one story that's really going to grab the heartstrings and motivate people to get involved. Well, there's usually never just one right thing. So, I mean, you're right, John, it's a, it's a choice. That's a double-edged sword. You've, you've got a lot of choices. You've got to cut through it, but you don't have to sweat. Oh my God. If I don't pick the right story, people aren't going to respond. You know, I encourage folks when they're just starting out to think about an animal that really reflects as many of the different kinds of things that you're doing as possible, unless there's a reason that you want to focus on just one. So if I had just come out of an, an earlier in the year campaign to help set up a new surgery suite, I would perhaps focus on an animal that really benefited from that surgery suite. Um, the story that I, that I just mentioned before, we really wanted to talk about three new things that had happened. Actually, three things like open adoption, they'd ramped up the foster program, that made a difference. And they'd reinvigorated some relationships that had been allowed to go dormant with rescue partners. And this particular dog benefited from all three of those. So we wanted to talk about those. So you can, you can start if you like. Sometimes it's just that a story pops up and everybody around you is going, oh, well, that's a great story. And you had asked me before to think about like, what are three things I can do right now? And one of those things I think would be start Start a way of collecting stories for your team, whether your team is large or small. Um, you know Mike Bricker, and I give him full credit for this. When he was out at an embed, he set up uh, a, a OneDrive where people would just upload their stories, a folder, and you could, that technology is not critical, but just a place where people put that. Some folks have started a private Facebook group that then their employees or volunteers can add stories there so that you're you're becoming a better story listener, a better story reader. And then you can think about what do we really want to emphasize for our donors? What are they already interested in? What do what will represent our work well? Is there anything that we kind of want to preview going into this next year? And then begin to push through the stories through whatever 
themes or values. Maybe there's a real value that you want to emphasize. Maybe you really, I'm thinking of a shelter right now in a very large city that is shifting its whole approach from being that punitive, you know, fine giver, um, somebody who's judging people to really trying to be the community resource. So I'd be looking for a story that really talked about being in the community of the community and being a community resource and how that whole aspect of their identity made a difference for not just an animal, but a particular family, right? If they're making that value shift, identity shift, you, the last thing you want to do is tell a story about an animal that makes it seem as if good things just fell out of the sky and had nothing to do with the families and the community. So that, again, thinking about that story is representative of whatever it is that you want to put out there for your donors to be able to not just respond to, but engage with. Well, I think, you know, I used to be a radio news journalist and one of the first and, and probably best tips I was ever given was to not think about the thousands of people that are out there listening. Instead, focus on that one person. You know, who are you telling the story to and just tell it to them? Who is it? Why do they care? Uh, you know, they were, it's still storytelling, nonfiction stories, but it, you know, not dissimilar, right? Talking to everyone is overwhelming. Talking to one person, that soccer mom driving the minivan, whatever, for me in radio, you know, just talk to them, tell them that story. You're, you're absolutely right. And I'm sure you've heard this from Barb and our other fundraisers. You always want to write any kind, whether it's email, again, the channel doesn't matter. But if you're writing a story, you want to write as one person to one person, not one person to a group of people, even though you know it's going to a group. And the same way, if you're doing any kind of oral storytelling, that to me is even easier because when I sit down in the living room, it's, it might be with a couple, um, but it might be just with an individual donor, but it's never with a group. So I try to push it through the filter of if I were telling this story in somebody's living room or in somebody's corporate office, how would I actually tailor that? Um, and that's, you know, there are some differences between telling the story verbally and writing it down. But that that's certainly one of the similarities that you want it to be one person to one person. You mentioned earlier the tip about collecting the stories that are happening every day, you know, having a structure that allows the frontline staff to pass those stories along. It's so crucial. You're not only making sure you're collecting them for whatever you may use them for, for fundraising purposes or whatever else, but you're also engaging your staff, allowing them to be proud of what they're doing, even just telling the stories internally, right? Hey, what a great success we had. And they feel heard and valued when it comes to the, the hard work they're doing. Go and ahead, you can just throw them in there. You know, you want to make this easy for people. You want to make it easy for people to give, but you also make, you want to make it easy for your staff, your volunteers, whoever, to, to not be intimidated, to not th just throw things in there, right? Hey, I'm Trish. I've got a great story about Buffy the cat. And then you, whoever's kind of leading that effort, because it does take somebody to lead that effort, then you go find that out, right? It may be, I used to spend a lot of time when I was fundraising in conservation, I used to feed people. 
because that was the one time I could get conservation program people to slow down. And it's probably even more true of animal welfare people. Um, although I think some of the animal welfare people, my boss included, they've got snack packs and they just live out of the snack pack. They don't ever actually sit down to eat. But in most cases, you can take people out for a quick coffee or whatever and always be asking for those stories, right? Have that thing, but also make it a proactive thing, asking for those stories. So what'd you do last week? And what'd you do the week before? And they may not remember anything beyond that particular time period, but you'll get bits and pieces and you can start to piece the story together, even if they aren't great storytellers naturally, because not all of us are. A lot of the work isn't perfect. It isn't happy endings. It isn't, you know, a ha at least a happy beginning, middle and end. So even when the outcome is good, what it took to get there probably had some tough things. How real do we need to be, Trish? And by that, I don't mean do we lie and make up stories. I just mean in the sense of striking a balance between, you know, the realities of what happened to that animal and that person or whatever, the full story, right? That can often be pretty rough. And I do get fundraising appeals sometimes from nonprofits and they're like so in like obviously fantasy. But of course, then again, on the flip side, we don't want to be so real. The only thing that you're doing for people is compelling them to, you know, hit unsubscribe or unfollow you. So how real should we be? I think real, in, in my worldview, real is how authentic you are. So I don't know many people on the planet forget the culture, but on the planet who believe that every story has a happy ending. I think if you as an organization have conveyed to people the challenge you're facing, so think about all of animal welfare. Most people out there may not know the degree to which some things happen, but they know that bad things happen to animals, right? They don't really need us to tell that. They need us to help them focus on the ones where they can make a difference and or they need us to make them aware. You know that I'm excited about this year's Best Friends Conference coming to North Carolina because so many of my fellow North Carolinians do not know we are killing more homeless pets in any state but Texas or California, right? I'm going to say that phrase a million times before next July when you guys all arrive. Um, and I don't need to go into deep, deep detail about what happens in North Carolina shelters for people to say, we've got to do something about this. So I think if you do a good job of conveying the challenge you face, um, people are imaginative enough to say, we need to stop this. And, you know, there, there is a difference. I think some organizations are focused primarily on stopping something. Some organizations are focused primarily on promoting more good. Like when I used to work with individual philanthropic clients and they would tell me, well, I want to give, but I've never really given before. So like, where do I start? I would hand them in those days a magazine or print newspaper and a couple of markers and say, here, if you run across anything that you think, hey, there should be more of that in the world, mark it in green. If you run across anything, you're like, man, we got to stop that stuff, mark it in red. And then let's sit down and let's look for organizations, you know, that do your green or your red. And I think one of the things people really love about Best Friends is we want to stop something, certainly, right? The killing of 
homeless pets simply because they have no other place to go home. But there's also this whole boatload of stuff that we want to promote. More kindness in the world, more inclusion in the world. That's one of the things. And to me, people generally have a sense that it isn't just about a happy ending everywhere. We will always be a work in progress, at least on those things we want to promote, right? Because as human beings, we are we are flawed. And so I think as opposed to having to try to create every story has a happy ending, which as you pointed out, does not feel authentic to you. We create a really good sense of what the challenge is, and what our solutions are, and then what feels authentic is that if the solutions really do address the challenge or the problem. And I think that's one of the reasons Best Friends has received the kind of monetary support that it has is because people truly do feel that we've got a grasp of the problem and we've got a grasp of the solution, but we're also being very realistic about saying we alone cannot solve this. It will take us all to save them all. Yeah, I do think it's a real art form to strike that balance. And, you know, one way, you know, you go too harsh and we're losing donors potentially for life. You know, I've had it. You know, you get something gnarly in your inbox. I don't want to keep getting that. And I don't trust you to not send me that again. So uh, I'm just going to turn you off, you know, and, and on the other side of that, I mean, if you're just too, you know, if you're just too fairy tale you lose, I think, the urgency of that call to action. I mean, if it's all so great, what do you need me for? Yep. And and it's practice. You know, I, I, I see so many people in in small groups, new groups, all kinds of groups. So how can I get as, as good as best friends or as other groups um, in, in telling this? And honest to Pete, it's practice. It really is. I mean, you you, you know that in, in terms of how many of the world's great writers of every culture were first great readers. So I think it's very hard for anybody who's never been a story listener to come out of the shoot being a great storyteller. You kind of have to do some deconstruction and that, and then that's another place people can start is sort of, okay, over the next 30 days, just be aware whether you, you you mentioned that soccer mom, maybe she's listening to NPR or whatever people are listening to or reading, maybe there is a piece of direct mail or an email they get that does affect them with the story that's told. So how did that happen? What was it that reached out and grabbed you? Start deconstructing that. Or even films. Films are a great place to start. If people are watching things on Netflix or any other channel and, and there's a particular film that really grabs you and you can't let go of it and you can't stop thinking about it, then sit down and deconstruct what that was. Back of the napkin. All right. Was it the characters that did it? Was it the timing? Was it the, I mean, I, I would tell you, and this is getting into advanced stuff, that when you're doing verbal storytelling, timing is so much part of it. You know that, right? I've, I've seen you use timing. You know really how to, well, how to use timing. But all of those things. But you can just start with the deconstruction. And that's um, one of our development communications folks, Christelle Delpret, who's just an amazing storyteller. We put together a little PowerPoint deck um, that we're going to try to get up on the website so anybody can look at it that just helps you kind of deconstruct a story that Christelle wrote about 
an animal and then encourages you to kind of put that back together again with your story. So you first you deconstruct the story of this dog and who were the heroes and what was the plot and what was the setting and that kind of thing. And it's just, you know, a couple of paragraphs. We're not talking war and peace here. And then you flip that and all right, so look around at the animals you're working with. And in this particular case, we were sort of trying to show that the dramatic conflict was this is a very shy dog, but someone came in and helped this dog do certain things that then overcame the shyness and he became much more adoptable. So again, keeping it simple. As tough as 2020 was in so many ways, I think 2021 for many people may have been more challenging. It certainly was for me, Trish. Uh, and we often talk about compassion fatigue in our industry for those of us who work and volunteer. But you know, myself as, again, a donor and a supporter of charitable organizations, there's a lot out there that we're constantly absorbing. So that sort of donor compassion fatigue you know, how do we balance that against all of these things? You know, again, making sure that we're being happy, but not just making people feel hopeless. Yeah, yeah. You 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 don't want to bring people to a point where they feel paralyzed because the problem is unsolvable. And that's what can happen when that's the only approach you take again and again. I'm not saying it won't work with some people, and it certainly will work once or twice with many people. But day after day, that same type of imagery and storytelling generally tends to, to bring people down because if they're seeing that over multiple years, what good is their gift really doing? I mean, the whole point of asking people for money is to turn that money into the solution for the problem, right? The, the, the logic of fundraising is there is a problem. We've identified the solution. The only thing between problem and solution, Mr. or Ms. Donor, is money, and you can fix that, right? That's the headstream logic. But that heart has got to also be in there somewhere because there, you know, for all of the folks out there that maybe haven't mastered the headstream, there are those who have. So I've still got just dozens and dozens of choices of where to give my money. But that organization that can set that up with their so that their solutions are seen as really viable, really on target. They've got a demonstrated track record that shows that there will be impact. And then you put in that heart message that also impacts me. That's the man, that's just the most powerful recipe you can possibly have. You know, I can, I can make a difference. That's what it all comes down to. All the other stuff may help in terms of public recognition, tax benefits, da, da, da. it affects that when and how and how much. But the why would we give in the first place is because I feel like I can make a difference in the world. It's just such an opportunity to like empower people, you know, especially in times like this, I feel where it can feel a little hopeless at, at times, you know, you get on and doom scroll social media and like nothing makes sense anymore. So sometimes I think it, there are opportunities there to help people realize that there are good things happening in the world and that they can be a part of those good things and be part of changing what can often feel like a, a you know, a very difficult time. Yeah. I think it goes back to what you were saying about it feeling genuine and authentic, and also thinking about that one person to one person 
we can't cover every situation. We don't know who is continuing to be, who's lost someone, who's lost a job. So, but I also don't think that we're in the same mode that we were when COVID seemed to be part of the lead of everything we're saying. So I think there's a balance there in terms of recognizing it is end of year, looking back, recognizing there's an impact, that there's going to be an ongoing impact, but also not being afraid to talk about how the normal work that we do helps people all the time with this stuff and will continue to help them, right? We know the value, for instance, we know the value of pets in combating isolation. We know the value of pets in a lot of ways. And so whether it's COVID or whether it's something else, we are able to say that our normal work will continue to help regardless of where we stand on COVID because we can't control that. We don't need to go into the statistics on how many people died in a particular community at a particular time, you know? But but I, I would reference in North Carolina, we've certainly had flooding and natural disasters, all of those fall under, it's been a tough year and it will probably continue to be tough times. And here are the things that pets bring to our lives that help us get through those tough times. Let's make sure that we don't falter in supporting those. Dear Trish, 700,000 people have died from COVID, but you know who didn't die? Walter, the one-eyed cat. Okay, well, maybe we could talk offline, John, because I think maybe you need a little more practice in teeing up that story. I know, it's a crude example. I'm sorry. I shouldn't I shouldn't have said that. But, you know, I think the point is that I'd like to say I've never seen anything like that in real life, Trish, uh, but I have. I've, And I think a lot of us have probably seen these, you know, appeals that degrade other organizations or degrade pet owners, you know, entire swaths of the community. And I'm not sure really what it is about us as as people that sometimes we're sort of drawn to tactics like that, that it's going to make us look better. But what is compelling to people generally isn't coming at the expense of others. Yeah. Well, and we're not going to be able to solve bad fundraising, capital B, capital F, right? I hesitate to even call some of what that fundraising, but... um, there's so many resources out there that today that really nobody has an excuse to be doing the kinds of things you're talking about there in terms of trying to raise money at the expense of others. That just tells me either either you haven't figured out what the solution to the problem is and you're or you're not able to talk about your solution because that's what you should be leading with. Here's what we're, you know, people, people are smart. They will compare your solution to the solutions of others. They're going to know who's showing an impact or not. You need to help them see that impact, but it's not going to do you any good to get out there and try to raise money at the expense of other organizations. That's not a long-term strategy at all. And talking yeah. about your work is the best way to go. And just in terms of, you know, not just our our natural humanity among us, but also just effectively over time. The team behind the Best Friends podcast, Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blyton, and Mark Peralta. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends podcast.